Welcome back to Everyday Anarchism, the show that finds cooperation, mutual aid, and non-domination in your everyday life. I am your host, Graham Colbertson. A few weeks ago, I did an episode about the business of soccer and did an interview with Julian from the Fonladen for this left-wing, I would say, anarchist team, FC St. Pauli or St. Pauli in the English pronunciation in the German Bundesliga. It is a club that has for almost 40 years maintained a strong left-wing punk anarchist identity. In this episode, I am talking with Fabian Fritz, who runs the educational programming for the Museum of FC St. Pauli, about the history of the club, how it became a left-wing club, its connections to national socialism during the Nazi era in Germany, and what the future of FC Tsung Pauli as a left-wing institution might be and what that could mean. I hope you enjoy this interview because it gives you a whole new way of thinking about a club, a sporting club, a sports institution, or really any institution. And Fabian and I talk about corporations and other institutions and how they can be run in a truly democratic manner. Please enjoy the interview after the theme music. Hello, my guest today is Fabian Fritz, a lecturer and research associate in the Department of Social Work in Hamburg University of Applied Sciences. Fabian's academic work is on democracy in football or Fußball auf Deutsch or soccer for Americans. And he also runs educational programs in conjunction with the FC Tank Pali Museum uh, 1910 EV. Sorry, I can't say that uh, auf Deutsch. Fabian is here today to discuss St. Pauli's legacy, its role as a democratic left-wing grassroots, maybe I'll ask him, even anarchist football club. Welcome, Fabian. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. Nice to see you. It's, it's you. lovely to see you as well. <laughs> yes, well, we can, we can see each other, but uh, the people listening will only be able to hear us. Um, I thought we could just start. I haven't um, introduced the history of the club yet to my listeners. They probably haven't heard of it. They may not know anything about European soccer, to be honest, but could you just begin by sharing with us how Tsangpali came to be this, this left-wing club with this seemingly very special identity in world football? Yeah, yeah, of course I can do, and uh, maybe it's uh, useful to know, I mean, it's only one or two sentences to know the whole history, because <laughs> I can, you know, make a shortcut, but um, St. Pauli wasn't a football club in the beginning. Is um, It was a club for gymnastics. So um, before 1910, um, it was a 100% gymnastics club. And in 1910, the football um, section was found. And later the club, you know, was only recognized at the football club. And so that's why um, we carry the 1910, even if the, uh, the gymnastics club of St. Pauli is much older. It's, uh, you know, um, 1800 something. And yeah, so um, that's how it started. And then in its, its history, the club um, as a football club became a very regular club. It wasn't a left-wing club at all. It was kind of, let's say it in the middle. Um, it wasn't right-wing. But when the fascists um, were given the power, then um, the, the club was in between, let's say. So we had a Jewish rugby section, for example. And um, when the fascists asked the clubs in Germany to you know, throw out Jews, they, our club didn't as long as it became a law. So that's something that people I, I would like to mention. But on the other hand, um, uh, yeah, important people from the National Socialist government had uh, strong positions in the club. So we couldn't say we were any kind of resisting club or there was no, no, you know, uh, nobody was fighting the fascists or something like this in the club. Um, maybe only some of the youth players that um, were forced to join the Hitler Youth and then they joined instead, they joined the alternative uh, youth subculture of the Swing Youth. I'm not sure you heard about that. So no. it was kind of German youth subculture there during the 
um, National Socialist time that yeah listened to um, American music. They had long hair and they behaved very much not like the Hitler Youth, you know. And so a lot of the youth players joined this kind of subculture. And there yes. is a there's a movie yeah. about this subculture. I had forgotten about this. I think it has Christian Bale in it or or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think some people yeah, there there is this it's a little bit older in the place in the rural area, or it oh. takes place in the rural area. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so um but anyway, so the club wasn't that, you know, it was not never in a big trouble with the fascists, but also not really, you know, um, not not waving their flag. But in the end, um, after the Second World War and the, the liberation of Germany, then um, the club straight went back to its normal daily life. Even the president that we had under the fascist time, he... Um, he was the same one, so they not changed mm. him. Okay. And the stadium was named after him for a long time, even if he was a member of the National Socialist Party. Some people say he was because otherwise the club couldn't survive. So we not know there is not much information because paper was rare at that time, and mm. so people not documented everything. So that's the thing. And then it became, you know, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, the club was just a regular a little bit conservative uh, community club, let's call it like this. It was based on the district, mostly. Most people that, you know, followed the club were from the district. And yeah, then in the 1980s, 90s, there came a lot of squatters to Hamburg and they squatted the Hafenstraße. It's the big street on Hamburg Hafen, a harbor. Um, and then they squatted Rote Flora, which is still the biggest squat in Germany or the only really squatted squat in Germany. Um, yeah, and that people began to follow football and that's why I decided they choose the nearest football club. And mm -hmm. there is also that kind of legend that says they also not joined our big neighbor or rivalry you know the club have a rivalry with the hsv hamburg sport club because there were too much really right-wing people mm. because at san Pauli we had right-wing people there are pictures showing fans having um, a reichs flag so it became the unofficial symbol of the fascist in the you know since the 80s 90s and yeah they they kicked them out and that was the beginning, let's say. And at the moment, we have an exhibition about that in our museum. It's called The Earthquake because it really was an earthquake. And yeah, since that, a lot changed in the club. But yeah, that, that was how it began. And since that, it was a long, long history with many details how it became what it is today. Okay, fascinating. Um, and has there been... Hey, you know, one of the big topics in the United States today is about the continual sorting. People, right-wing people and left-wing people are, are moving to different cities, to different neighborhoods, to different parts of the country. Is, is Hamburg still sort of sorted that way? Is there still a, le a left-wing area around St. Pauli and the Reaper bond? Is, does that still exist in 2021? Mm. So from my perspective, the left-wing movement or the subculture, however you want to call it, I think is in kind of a crisis at the moment. Mm. Um, not only since the last election where the left-wing party was having a very bad result, but also before that, you know, we have um, different inner left-wing, um, you know, fights, mostly about the... Um, the question of um, anti-imperialistic and non-anti-imperialistic left-wing stuff. Maybe you know it from the, it's, it's nearly the same everywhere in Europe yes. and I think worldwide. Yes. Um, and yeah, um, so you know, back to your question, I would say, yes, that was the case for a long time. People wanted to live in San Pauli or the neighborhood districts to be in the left-wing subculture, but it changed a little bit today. I think people want to come because it's a gentrified area. So mm. If you are left-wing in kind of, in the sense of you like punk rock, like squats, you like small clubs, then you would probably not move to St. Pauli anymore. You maybe would move to Hamburg, but 
there are different non not gentrificated areas at the moment because to be honest the left-wing subculture gentrificated that area so this the, this the club is, is in the middle of that this is also an incredibly common story in in america um the hippies and the artists and the squatters move into the neighborhood and then it becomes trendy and then the yeah. um the hipper bourgeoisie move in and then the less hip bourgeoisie move in and then it's just a just a bourgeois neighborhood i didn't realize that was happening uh, around yeah. Paulo, although that makes sense yeah i talked to some people from portland for example they told me that's more or less the same what happened to their city my my last guest fabian is a is a scholar um who currently lives in portland oregon and he's lived there for 20 years and i talked to him about this idea of of the sort and left-wing neighborhoods and, and left-wing communities. And he said, oh yes, Portland was like that way, but it's not, it's not anymore. So this is a common story, but I'm sure the new places yeah. are, are coming. But if you, for your listeners, if you want to have an image of Hamburg, even if you never went and take Portland, put some older houses in, and then you probably have exactly how Hamburg looks like also with the river in the middle and all that subcultural stuff. And so, so you, you get a good picture of Hamburg if you travel to Portland. Oh, that's fascinating. Thank you. I, I think I should also mention, because I don't know to what extent, Fabi, my listeners understand um, the way the Nazi party works. I mean, this is a this is a touchy issue. So for, if, if you don't know, there was a certain point in time in there was a certain point in time in German society in the 30s where essentially you could not hold an official role, a role of prominence without joining the Nazi party and a great mystery to this day, so some people refused to join the Nazi party and other people joined. And then after World War II said, oh, but I didn't, I didn't mean it. I just sort of had to, I wasn't really a Nazi. And when the US government came to quote, denazify the country, well, the allies, but the US government was the leader of it. They really did try to study these people and they determined that roughly 90% of the Nazis were not, you know, quote, really Nazis, but we don't have any idea if that's an accurate statement. So there's still this mystery, this huge number of people who were professors or leaders in a club like Sao Paulo that were members of the Nazi party and how involved they were in the ideology. I mean, we've all, we've all joined organizations or taken positions or signed something we didn't really want to sign. And the question was, how many of these people did that apply to? And it sounds like this, this leader of the club, we just, we just don't, don't know it sounds like all right i try so first of all um i from his point of history there is i would call it a german myth um that if you talk to any kind of german probably people will explain you yeah but in my family there was that one guy he was a social democrat or whatever he he had trouble with the fascists because it's really hard for people to realize that your own grandparents or grand-grandparents were part of a, you know, a yeah, society within a dictatorship and did nothing against it. But from the statistics, um, the, the number that's floating around is um, 0.2% of the, of the Germans really were in the opposite of, of the mm -hmm. fascists. So that's, that's like nothing. <laughs> and of course, we highlighting all that stories, but we also have to deal with that the majority of the of the people that lived here, they, they got along with it and a lot of people supported it. And I would say that uh, what the fascists always did was um, they introduced something, then waited a little bit, then they introduced more. They did it step by step. And so a lot of people say, oh, we couldn't, see that coming but i wouldn't say it's true and history research proves that most people knew about it and that's how we we redefine history at the moment and the german you know also the official german um heritage redefines um german history by telling everybody this story oh there was no choice we if everybody wanted to live here we had to get along with that and yeah, that's the same story they tell about our club. And I think in this case, it, it could be even true. So we don't really know because there is no material. But what was the case? So when the nationalists 
uh, National Socialists realized, okay, there is too much non, yeah, how you say that, Aryan stuff going on in the mm -hmm. club. So people played card games, they drunk in the club and stuff like this, especially the young ones. So the, the fascists were not really happy about that and told them, oh, yeah, you have to bring everybody into the Hitler Youth. So then at that point, they brought in um, a fascist politician uh, or a guy that was a fascist leader. Uh, yeah, Wolf was his name. They brought him in the, in the club as the, um, as the yeah, leader, let's say. Yeah, they called it the club leader. But there was still the, the president that was member of the, the National Socialist Party as well. But he was in there probably to, you know, to get along with everything that happens to the club. So that's the story. And then we had that two guys being in a leadership and the members of the club only followed the old president and not that fascist guy because they said, oh, yeah, that we don't know him. He's just there for politics and stuff. So that's the short version of it. And yeah, so that's always what we have. Of course, we have that Germans that were active in the Nazi regime and really, you know, were... Um, how you call that offenders No, not offenders, but they were like the ones, the responsible ones. And then we had mm -hmm. all that people that were based in the structures, but afterwards told everybody, oh, I couldn't do anything. And I wouldn't believe that hype, <laughs> even if it's hard you, but the, the real change. So that was a long story. Only the, um, the movement of um, 68, uh, 80, 86 um, brought in the, you know the change so this generation asked their parents what did you do in the in the past uh i'm sorry this wasn't where i was planning on going with this at all but i haven't had a chance to talk national socialism so for a long time it's a sophie shoal is that right do i have that name right mm -hmm. the other thing is um i myself am pretty skeptical of this of this narrative i mean i'm i'm from the american south and we have this same narrative it's further back certainly uh, about slavery of, oh, you know, um, not many people really participated in it. And there were just a few and some people went along. I'm pretty skeptical. I'm also a huge fan uh, of the films of Reiner Werner Fassbender. And he, uh, mm -hmm. he does not believe this, this, this narrative. He, he highlights the hypocrisy of the people who uh, claim to have had sort of nothing to do with national socialism, but went but went along with it. So that's that's my point of view. But I did want the listeners to know about this this narrative because without understanding the history, you would say, how could someone be a member of the National Socialist Party, but you know, not you know, be allowed to return to the club in the next year? And so there's this very complicated, oh well, how involved were they? Um, yeah, story. And it's. I mean, maybe it's too too far away from your topic, but it's interesting you mentioned Sophie Scholl because we had a, a debate in Germany about that. Why do we always... So what they try to do is to to make a move about Sophie Scholl as the German Anne Frank. Mm -hmm. Maybe you heard about Anne Frank, you know, yes. the, the victim of the fascists. So, and I think that's... The story behind that is that Sophie Scholl... And, all respect to her. I'm not want to blame her, but what what is working on that? That she was not that radical as the people that got killed in masses by the by the fascists, mm. like the communists or the you know the the Jewish people. So um, it works better with the German move um, to have Sophie Scholl as the 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 you know the the highlight um, person of resistance than having. The Red Front or somebody like mm. this, because they would not fit in the German politics of today. But Sophie Schul would perfectly fit in our politics from today. So that's why they highlight stuff like this. So you're saying that Sophie Schul's uh, project could certainly have been viewed as radical when she did it, but now it's considered mainstream, and so she's an easy. I mean, we have these heroes. One of them in America, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. He, you know, everyone agrees on him, but they are unwilling to really look. He actually was a very radical figure, and that just doesn't get mentioned. It's oh, MLK was good. The yeah. end, let's not talk about it. Nice and mainstream, and left wing and right wing can can agree. But in fact, he was an incredibly left wing figure who does not fit into the current mainstream in America. But that part of him is ignored because it doesn't it doesn't fit this narrative. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, I think uh, I want to take another example. For example, there is uh, Stauffenberg, the, this army guy that tried to kill Hitler. Mm -hmm. And he is always highlighted, even if he supported the National Socialism. So mm -hmm. he just wanted to end the war. And he has a much bigger heritage in Germany and people um, praise him as a hero than, for example, Georg Elser, the, the, the Red Front communist guy that uh, blow up the bomb that nearly killed Hitler, but then not did in the end, because Georg Elser not really fits in the heritage plan. Let's call it like this. And that's what I'm just what I want to say. So Sophie Scholl uh, fits in because she would be a middle class, middle to conservative person today, I think. Right. And so it was good. She realized that fascism is wrong, but Uh, first, it was not her topic. And so I just want to say we should also, um, you know, bring people back to the memories that um, that fought for the Red Front or for the Social Democrats or whoever it was besides Sophie Joy. That's wonderful. That's certainly part of part of my project is reminding people of the radicalism in mostly in America, which my PhD is in American culture, mm -hmm. but the, the radical elements that that have been left out either in an individual like MLK or in individuals that we simply do not talk about because even if, even if they made a huge difference in our history, their, their views are uncomfortable for the present mainstream. Um, I, I certainly wasn't planning on discussing the, the history of, I guess the history of the history of fascism, but I, I find this topic fascinating. I will, I guess, move back to Sarpali and ask you how you got involved with the club and with, with the museum, what your, what your uh, narrative is about Sao Paulo. Yeah, but probably you mentioned already because I'm really fitting into that kind of story, moving to Hamburg because it wasn't cool when you were laughing to go to that city. <laughs> but um, my contact with the club uh, was, so I grew up in East Germany and were a left-wing person because my parents, you know, raised me like that. I was in the trade unions later, uh, later in some more, you know, political groups and stuff like that. And it was hard to watch football if you were interested in football in this area because the, the nearby clubs, they were all crowded with right-wing people or not crowded with right-wing people. That would be wrong. I don't want to paint that picture of the right-wing East, but... Um, if you would go there as a left wing, they would spotted you and you had trouble with that group, mm. even if it was not a big group. And so I started to going to all the games that were in East Germany or in Bavaria so that I could reach from my hometown. And there I got in touch with people. So I started, first contacts I have was with the fan club called St. Pauli Skinheads. So it was a skinhead, you know, from the subculture skinhead, they had a fan club and then I moved to Hamburg and so I stood with the active fan base and later I studied um, social work or social pedagogy. And at one point um, people realized I do good work and people from the club asked me to first do some workshops for the youth training center. So I did, uh, I, I, back in 2014, I ran a program Or I made a program for the young youth players. And after we set up the museum, I decided, Lord, let's bring in my let's bring my my hobby and my job together and do some pedagogical work in the museum. And that's how I became the pedagogical manager of the the museum. That's that's the short version. Oh, that's thrilling. So I didn't I didn't realize I didn't know your story. So you 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 followed the classic journey from from outside Hamburg. To Hamburg, drawn by the left-wing scene, and then in, in involvement with the club and the left-wing community and education, and you're you're bringing it all together. That's exciting. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you what you do with the museum, or if, if people if people go, what can they expect? Uh, right. Yeah. So uh, first of all, it's a regular museum, so you can see the history, the trophies of the club, but uh, we always do special exhibitions where we focus on different aspects of the club. So for example, we had one about the 
the history during the Nazi time, or then we had have at the moment we have one that exactly focus on the question you asked before how the club became what it is now. Mm. Um, yeah, we had different <laughs> stuff. And here's yeah, here's the clock. The here's the clock as promised. All right. Yeah. So um, yeah. So that's that's what we have there. But we also run um, our own bar in the museum to make the money for the museum. So that's also, it's not only a museum, it's also a meeting point or like a local pub, if you want to call it like this. And the third aspect is that we run the guided stadium tours and the workshop for schools and youth uh, groups. So that's my part then. Oh, that's that's really exciting. I didn't, I didn't know um, that, there was, that there was a pub as part of the museum. That's, that's a place I will- It's more a bar, but yeah. I'm going to call it a pub. It sounds more yes. fun. In in America, we don't have pubs, so people some like there's a there's a so-called Irish pub near where I live, and it is it is owned by an Irishman, but it's it's not a pub. It's just a bar. You can get away with calling anything a pub for Americans because we don't know pubs right. or ever see pubs, so we just call some bars pubs. I'm going to call this a pub. Um, I do. I definitely do want to visit Hamburg at some point. I mean, I. Was wearing as as you mentioned, I I do support Saint Pauli and have worn the the gear, and I was wearing it in this quite small town in Western North Carolina in the mountains, and a a man walked by me and then turned around, and then you know a German accent started talking to me about Saint Pauli and how the club was doing that year, and he said, uh, "You you've got to go, you have to go. It is a, it is a pilgrimage. It is a left wing pilgrimage." And then he pointed. I have two children. He pointed to the children and said, "You need to take them as well. It is a place for them to go." So it sounds like yeah. that's that's the role you you do at the museum is young people can come and and take part in this in this pilgrimage. Yes. So, but yeah, I think so. As a left wing worldwide, people seems to have a list, or maybe we have a, this list too. But I think so. Between going to Cuba and um, maybe I don't know, visit uh, Moscow, there is Saint Paul in the middle. So that's that's you know like tick that. So we have a, a lot of people coming um, to our club watching a game that are more involved with the politics. And um, yeah, as you already mentioned, that seems to be fine for us because uh, you know we have uh, no problem with people coming to visit. Um, the the voice you mentioned saying oh we don't want the tourists uh, is mm, yeah it's a little bit older voice and I would say that so it's this guy is not really having any impact on the club anymore that's one point and the other point is of course there are people that are still annoyed by people coming really as tourists but you know it's a different if you are a political visitor and want to make contact or if you really come as a tourist and just want to consume our our atmosphere or stuff like that so i would make it different there okay good that's that's good to hear uh, we haven't we haven't mentioned yet people may not know that there's uh the beatles um did, played uh, a lot in the area where it's on Pali is so i'm sure there's lots of beatles tourism as as well yeah, yeah. So, or I mean, there is a lot of Hamburg tourism anyway. It's <laughs> yeah. the most touristic place in Germany, I think, at uh, maybe behind Bavaria. But um, our district, I feel our district has more hotels than normal flats at the moment. Yeah, yeah. Well, that that so, that speaks to the gentrification that yes, that we were yeah, talking yeah. about. Exactly. Yeah, that's a big problem for the club as well. So it's in an area now where most of the fans can't afford to live anymore. So people probably have to travel longer to visit a club than they had to do 10 or 20 years ago. Mm. Okay. So it's not, it, it just doesn't have the same community around it as it used to. Again, we were talking about Portland. This is the case for most, most of those neighborhoods in America as well. Yeah. Um, I did want to ask you, um, I mentioned this to you, the, the the show is called Everyday Anarchism. I have a very a very broad definition of of anarchism. I, I I think I mentioned you. I've spoken to a few people, and they said, "Oh, I'm I'm not sure if it's an anarchist club. I wouldn't describe it as anarchist." Let me give you my my definition of anarchism, which is just any version of 
mutual aid, solidarity, cooperation, which tries to create something, build something that's a more just and, and better world or, or better institution without uh, leaning on hierarchy or, you know, state coercion. I mean, this is the classic distinction between anarchists and state socialism or, or state communism is it's, it's a voluntary communal project as opposed to a technocratic top-down project. And certainly uh, punks and pirates are both famously um, anarchists. Some of the most famous punk bands of all time. I mean, one of them is called Black Flag, which is the anarchist symbol for those who don't know. So it seems to me that there's an anarchist energy, at least under my definition, or the definition I'm using in the show under Sankt Pauli. I mean, that's what, that's what drew me to it. But again, a few of the people I talked to were skeptical about applying the word anarchism to Sankt Pauli. So I wanted to know if you had thoughts on this. Um, yeah. So I think there was a long time, uh, let's say maybe there, there's a big uh, connection between the punk culture and Sankt Pauli. And that's probably why it would be easily to link this kind of punk anarchism with the club. But it's more difficult to do it if you if we really talk about political theory and link it with the club. So that's that's more difficult. But yeah, f- from the first point, I would agree that um, you know there were a lot of um, anarchist symbols from the punk subculture were used on stickers, on flags um, with the club, and people where well, you know it was a huge bunch of punks traveling to the out uh, for for the away games and stuff like that but i think mm, when the ultras as the youth subculture became the most important subculture it turned a little bit so people would um definite themselves more as communist or as Mm -hmm. the, the ultras using the hammer and sickle and stuff but i would say they have a more this kind of council communism mm-hmm. in in mind and not so much the the state communism so it's really you don't see any stalin um <laughs> you know uh, counterfaces or stuff around but i would say that it's not hip anymore to be an anarchist to be honest so that's not <laughs> it's, it's not hip the, anymore. yeah it's uh it sounds a little bit I, I, I never thought about that before you asked for the interview, but I realized that a lot of this anarchist stuff broke away. There was much more punk rock subculture within the last few years. That could be because, you know, people grew up and became maybe apolitical or more interested in communism because there's more theory or, you know, it's... But yeah, I couldn't explain you why, but it's just my feeling that it not plays that big role anymore. Um, and yeah, I think it's just because the subculture changed from punks and maybe skinheads to um, and squatters to ultras and a little bit more of the Italian influence came in. And I think in Italy, there is also much more communist history yeah, so, it does. That's my explanation for that, but I, I never did any case study or something like that about it. No, that sounds really interesting. I mean, you do see when you watch games, there are definitely flags being flown that have the anarchist A on them. Like there's not, it's not that that is not there, but there's also plenty of Che and, and hammer and sickle and that yeah. and that sort of thing. I don't, again, in my in my pretty broad definition, um, something like as you say, council communism. We don't we don't use the word council in America, but, you know, a, lo- a local communism as opposed to a state or centralized communism. Um, to me, that fits under the the banner. It's the, it's these, you know, I, I want a left-wing tradition that avoids Stalin and Mao. And, and I guess also Lenin and Trotsky, Trotsky sometimes, sometimes I like Trotsky. And that, that seems to me that probably fits in that tradition. Yeah, so I think it fits in because it's a local um, structure that's as far as it could be as a football club. It's democratic and it's based on solidarity with the district or people care about, you know, the district and stuff like that. So, yeah, it would 
some people say San Pauli is a, like a political party yet, or it sometimes has the same power on certain questions like um, a political party has. So from that perspective, I would totally agree. And then um, that's something very German, you know, and that brings me back to one thing from the beginning when you said 1910 EV. So EV stands for recognized club. Uh-huh. That means that you have a charity club one that not making profit got it and that's what what every german club it doesn't matter if it's a sports club or if it's boy and girl scouts or if it's a trade union or whatever you want um any kind of non-government organization and um, by the law has to have a democratic structure and that also and especially counts for sports clubs and we see that um a desolation of that rule by big clubs turning into companies, you know, um, like the HSV did or some other, they make their profi, you know, professional teams becoming a company. And our club always tried to avoid that and keep that kind of democratic structure that is given by the law. And people really believe in it and, you know, um, try to doing it. So we have annual general meetings where everybody that is a member of the club could go and stuff like that. So that's for me is the beginning of democracy. And, but then we have to ask how from a daily life aspect, is it really democratic? What, how can people learn in that structure to become Democrats and all that stuff? So I think that's a really useful view to see not only the sports to also see the structure and stuff. And I think you would probably f- um, attract more people in Germany if you're not saying, oh, it's an anarchist or communist club, because I think people would s- run away and scream the same way, the same way as they do in the United <laughs> States. So if we're talking about democracy, that's probably um, fitting much better into what people think about clubs. Yes. So I don't, I don't know. That all sounds fantastic. I don't know to what extent you're aware of this debate within within anarchism, but there's anarchist traditions that uh, say that they're democratic. A lot of times people say radical democracy, and they really mean that as a synonym for anarchism. But there's also an anti-democratic tradition in anarchism, which is the idea that there is a vote, everyone is invited to that vote, but then whatever decision is made by 51% of the population or even just a plurality in, in certain systems, so not even 51%, that that decision is, is law, is permanent, is unquestionable and can be enforced with violence. And in that, in that respect, anarchism is against democracy. If the only difference between you know, democracy, monarchy and fascism is who chooses who is, you know, uh, under threat with state violence, then democracy is no good and is deeply against anarchism. Oscar Wilde says democracy is, I think it's the bludgeoning of the people by the people for the people. So if you're talking about, you have an annual meeting, which I think a lot of these clubs do, the ones that are not like Tsong Pai, there's an annual meeting, there's a vote, there's not really anything on the line in the vote that's it's rigged. Maybe you're voting for a board and there's five spots and five candidates and there's no real voice for the people. And I would say that's quite un-anarchistic. I don't get the sense that that's how Tsong Pali is. I get the sense that the fans actually do have a, a role in the maintenance of the, of the club and its identity. And that's why I would, I would put it under this yeah. loose heading of anarchism. I think what could be useful here is to let's maybe take away the anarchist thing for a moment but if we look in a democracy um point of view then use that um how john dewey saw democracy he's from chicago so probably people know him he was a great philosopher from the united states if they listen to this podcast fabian i mentioned john dewey every uh, every week so go, go ahead yeah but going for his idea to split or to see democracy not only as a form of government, so also as a form of daily life, then we probably could say, your, you know, your what do you say? It's anarchism. You can't really um, compare it to monarchy or stuff like that because then you say it's a system, and anarchy can't be a system, as you know, 
democracy can be a system and it can be a daily life. So anarchy could be the same. So that's what I think. And yeah, if if in the club we can have kind of system-related um, levels of democracy, especially votes and stuff, but we also have all these debates going on, the daily meetings and all that stuff. And I think that's really, you could cover that with the, the theory of Dewey saying that's the daily life aspect of democracy. And the, the other theoretical guy I really like for his democracy theory is Habermas with his deliberative democracy mm -hmm. saying everybody affected should take part in the decision. And if you combine that, saying everybody affected should be, um, you know, take part on the on the you know government level and I'm not spe speaking about states i would say also the club has a government right. and also on the daily life basis then then i would say yeah okay then then we have and you can call it anarchy or however yeah. you want to call it we have it um and i think we should not always search for for democracy or anarchy where it's written down it is so of course our state is a democratic state but it's a democratic state on the form of government and not of daily life so that's really cut off from from it exactly and and fabian look i couldn't agree more with all of this my my phd was um reading american uh cities as they developed in the late 19th and early 20th century through a sort of Deweyan lens and uh the one thing i knew i didn't want to have anything to do with was the anarchists because i knew they were violent and destructive and all the bad stereotypes about anarchism. Um, the reason why I'm using the term anarchism in this podcast uh, is part to, to shock, but it's to shock people into realizing that so much of what we most value about life and everyone who reads Dewey, well, everyone hates reading him because his prose is very difficult. I hope the German translations are are clearer than Dewey because yeah, Dewey, no. They, they are the same. Yeah. <laughs> it's atrocious. Um, but we have this idea of of uh, a grassroots democracy, of a of these set of practices, not of a system. And it turns out that a huge percentage of anarchists, I would say most of the anarchist traditions more or less agree with, with John Dewey, but the only part that gets focused on is their willingness to destroy the, the big picture, the governmental system that's overarching. And I'm trying to recover the... Uh, emphasis on this communal practice of democracy. I'm happy to call it Dewey and democracy instead of anarchism. But if I made a podcast called uh, Dewey and democracy, no one would be interested. But anarchism is a topic that that draws people in. I think. Believe me, Fabian, yeah. I've been talking to people about Dewey for a long time, and no one's listening. All right. Yeah, but I'm using him as well in my work. And I think it's a good combination with Habermas because then you can also cover the difference between system and life world. Mm -hmm. And what my theory is, if we really have spaces of daily life democracy, it's clubs. So because I can only speak for the German um for the German society, but it could fit on the American one as well, because maybe, you know, Tocqueville, he traveled to the United States and he found out, okay, it's such a strong democracy because of the clubs. And I think that fits for Germany because on all that kind of influence on daily life where you, that is limited by our democracy as a, a form of government, like you can give your vote, but you, you know, you're not really influencing something directly. But you can do it in the local club that you join and you can, you know, take over um, volunteering. You can take part in votes, but you can also take part in daily debates and all that stuff. So that's where democracy, SDUE or Habermas or that people think it in theory, you know, is still alive. But I think it's not recognized because clubs became so much commercialized and that's or what Habermas say, the system with all its money, it's colonizing the life world. That's what we see. Yes, yes, I, I, I agree. But I mean, at least from my distance of thousands of miles away, I see Sao Paulo as, as a place that is certainly looks better than, than any other 
any other major sports institution that I that I am aware of, and frankly, in in the world. Yeah, and I think I wouldn't um, disagree because I think what our club is, it's both. It's um, or it's something else. It's a symbol for mm -hmm. you know that stands for um, being against that kind of commercialization, all that stuff. But on the other hand, if you would have a you know a deeper look on it you also have to search the places where you can really get involved in the club and where mm -hmm. it's not only politics of symbols because i mean it's nice to have all the a's on the flag and the red star everywhere and all that stuff but where do we bring that kind of spirit to be alive you know or where where, where do we live in a democratic structure that's what we have to ask and i think there also the club has a lot of opportunities that are You know, and so it makes a good combination. It's a symbol and the place where you can live in a democratic structure if you want to join it. Yes, um, and I, I do think that those, at least a great deal of scholarship has gone on in America showing that those, those places are pretty rare in, in the United States. And perhaps it's different in Germany insofar as these democratic spaces are being revived, these democratic practices, these organizations it's usually someone under the banner of, of anarchism. Um, at, least I, at least I have found that. Um, I do want to ask, is there any way to, to get involved um, with the club from, uh, from a distance? I know you can become a member if you can wait, make your way through the German form, which I, which I have not yet. My German's probably good enough to fill out the form, but it would be a, it would be a little project for me. So what can people do besides, I don't know, watching the club when they're on TV, which they are occasionally now in America? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So everybody could become a member and then um, uh, you, you know, you can join the forum and that stuff. The only thing you then probably can't do is taking place or uh, taking part in the annual general meetings. If you, I mean, you could travel over, but um, I think there is that kind, I would, you know, make a difference between we have that kind of milieu or group of the people living here, going to the club together, you know, like doing the daily life stuff on a daily basis. And then we have that nice community of um, international supporters. They are always or sometimes connected to each other. For example, there is the East River Pirates that St. Pauli Bar in New York and, um, When we used to play in the United States for the friendlies, we had a lot of local fans over there. And as far as, you know, I could not leave my position as a local, but um, as far <laughs> as I noticed, there is, there is um, like, uh, or, you know, I know that, the, for example, the guys from the UK, they are in a good contact to the guys from Spain, from the US and everywhere. So it seems to be like a community of the internationals following the club. And if you want to visit our club, realize that. And so the fan laden, what is kind of the social space you will to go and interview them as well, you told me. Um, they also take care about all the fan clubs from abroad. So they organize tickets for them. And that, I think, kind of shows that we are not against tourists. Uh, we, no, we are against tourists, I would say. But we are not against guests that share the same ideas. We probably don't like so much as people just coming for the event and taking away the the space for the people that want to go deeper into it. Mm -hmm. Because that's that's sometimes annoying, and, and and I understand that because a lot of regular tourists that come as tourists for the city they want to buy tickets and go to the game. But if you would come with your San Pauli jersey, I think that's something else, you know. Right. Okay. Good. Well, that's well, that's very reassuring to hear. Um, I I think we've covered everything I was hoping to cover. Fabian, is there anything you would like to add? Mm, not at the moment. No. Thank you very much for the uh, invitation. And I found that uh, find this a very interesting project. Even if I would be probably more interested if you would call it Dewey and democracy, because. Uh, <laughs> I stopped being an anarchist a long time, I think, maybe when I, I was not a teenager anymore. But yeah, uh, I, I agree that that's probably the, the more fancy title for it. And it, I think it, it fits very well. There's a lot of energy. You know, David Graeber passed away recently, but there's a lot of energy behind 
what I would call Dewey and democracy under the name anarchism right now, at least in the English speaking world. And there's no energy for Dewey and democracy, but I'm with you. That's where, that's where I started. Yeah. Cool. No. And what I want to add is to maybe if people are interested in San Pauli, then it's kind of interesting to have a look on other clubs as well. So we have similar clubs to that, for example, Babelsberg from Potsdam or even the fans of Werder Bremen of Bayern Munich. They are also left-wing and people sometimes don't know about it. So that could be just interesting if people are interested in St. Pauli to see the, the, others, the other examples of you know fan bases and communities trying to develop similar ideas and not That's only have a look on St. Pauli, but uh, yeah, I understand that the club is such a huge um, symbol that, and I always use it as well. You know, if I'm talking about politics for young people in my courses, it's very useful symbol. Okay. Well, um, I didn't know that about Bayern Munich. I will, I was aware about uh, Werder Bremen and Potsdam. I will, I will have to check them out, but for now the Jersey I'm wearing is at uh, St. Pauli and that's where I, that's where I plan on spending my time. Thank you so much. That's really Bye. great. Yeah, thank you very much. And then um, have a nice evening. All right. You as well. Okay, thank you so much to Fabian. It was such a pleasure to talk to him and to talk to him about John Dewey. I will have an episode on John Dewey in the next month or two with one of my dissertation directors, Dr. John McGowan. So you can look forward to that. Otherwise, I just want to thank all of you who have contributed to the show by giving financially, by sending in questions and comments, by leaving iTunes reviews, and by telling your friends. Please keep it coming. Email me at everydayanarchismpodcast at gmail.com. And above all, if you can, support the show by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or, best of all, most valuable in this uncertain year, if you can go to everydayanarchism.com and contribute to the show financially. Thank you so much, and remember the music which you're about to hear is by David Hill.